0: Well, good morning, Johnson Ferry. I uh, want to say hey to not only those of you here in the AC, but welcome everyone who's worshiping in the sanctuary right now. And if you would take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter twenty-three. If you were here last week, it's the same text in which we began the series last week in the seven last words of Jesus from the cross, and we're going to continue that today in Luke twenty-three. If you're New to this whole thing, don't have a Bible, that's okay. We'll have the scriptures on the screen for you and hope that you can follow along. We'd love to get you a Bible. Luke 23. Today, looking at the second last word, we're going to be focusing a lot on the word paradise. Now, I don't know what you think about when you think about the word paradise. For whatever reason, these words come to my mind, but at night I'd have these Wonderful dreams, some kind of sensuous treat. Not zucchini, fettuccine, or bulgur wheat, but a big warm bun and a huge hunk of meat. Cheeseburger in paradise. <laughs> Heaven on earth with an onion slice. Not, not too particular, not too precise. I'm just a cheeseburger in paradise. Yes, the great prophet Jimmy Buffett is uh, teaching us about... about- so, so when you think about paradise what do you think about? Maybe maybe it's a place. On a cold Sunday morning, you're thinking about places that you might like to go that would be a paradise for you. And in fact, I'd, I'd like to know where you would choose to go if you had two different options. So we're going to play a little game in both venues called This or That. All right, y'all ready for a This or That? And you answer by just pointing to the answer that that. You would answer. So there's no right answers, just, just your answer. But in both rooms here in the sanctuary, just, just point to what you think. Alright, so if given the choice for talking about paradise, would you rather go to Alaska or Montana? Which one? Let's just let's see it. Alright? Okay? Seems evenly divided. Okay. How about this one? Paris or London? Alright, not Kentucky, like the real deal. Paris. Or London, all right? Yeah, a lot lot of Paris this morning, all right? Would you rather go to the ocean floor or outer space? Or neither, someone, okay, uh, all right. How about this one? The Grand Canyon or Mount Rushmore? Yeah, everyone's good. I mean, Mount Rushmore, it's like one statue and that's it. Like, what else are you gonna do? All right, last, last one, but be careful how you answer because I was born in one of these places. All right, so would you rather go to... Waikiki Beach or, I can't even say it, or Myrtle Beach. Yeah, yeah. Shame on you all. Shame on, I, actually, I would much rather go to Waikiki Beach, even if I was born in the other. So, uh, well, I promise you when Jesus was talking about paradise, he wasn't thinking about Myrtle Beach, all right, or any of these other places. Uh, It is something so much deeper, and we're going to focus on that today as we go back to. A horrific scene. We're looking at Jesus hanging on the cross as we march to Easter and, and what he says to us from the cross. So if you would take Luke 23, we're going to read what we read last week and then add the, the second half to it in the, in the last few verses. So we're going to look at Luke 23, verses 33 through 43. So if you have that in your Bibles in both rooms, would you stand up? I'd love to read this for you. Luke twenty-three, thirty-three through forty-three. And this is what God says in His Word. And when they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing his garments among themselves. And the people stood by, watching. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also ridiculed him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there, was hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other responded and rebuking him said, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly for we are receiving what we deserve for our crimes. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today, today, you will be with me in paradise. Before you sit, today we're going to be looking at that last sentence. Today, you will be with me in paradise. And all morning long, We are calling people to respond to that offer of paradise. In fact, at the end of our services today in both rooms, we're going to be calling on you to respond, to actually get up out of your seat and to respond to whatever it is that Christ is doing in your life. So let's pray and ask God to work and for the spirit to move as we look at his word. Father, as once again we're transported to that dark day when your son hung on a cross for us, We're listening with attentive ears, saying, speak to us. This this word of of paradise, Lord, speak to us. And God, may we respond to what it is you're saying. We love you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now you guys have a seat. So we're back to the scene on the cross, And as I told you last week, the point of this scene is not the blood and the gore. It's not to make you feel bad for Jesus. The point of Jesus being crucified is the degrading effect of crucifixion, the shame that was accompanied by crucifixion. But this is not accidental, it's not coincidental. No, Jesus is actually fulfilling divine prophecy. Isaiah 53 says that he, the Messiah, was counted with wrongdoers as he bore the sins of many. Jesus's last companions on earth are two criminals, the, the worst of humanity. How interesting is it that when Jesus was born, he was surrounded by the beasts of the field? When he died, he was surrounded by the dregs of society. It says something about the heart of God. And I believe that in this scene of Jesus on the cross, yes, we are to glory in the cross, and yes, we are to look at Jesus and learn from Jesus and and see what Jesus is doing, but also I think in today's text, we have these two criminals that in many ways are symbolic of the different responses to Christ, and we even see in one criminal how his life has changed because of the ministry of Christ. And that's our prayer today, that God is going to change lives today on this Sunday morning. To do so, I I want us to explore this word paradise. In fact, that's in his statement. And ask a few questions about paradise. And I hope that you'll follow along with me. We have some fill-in-the-blank questions. an outline in the welcome guide, if that helps you to follow along. But there are three questions I'm asking today, and let's answer those questions. And then I'm praying that, that many of you are going to respond to Jesus in some profound way today. The first question is this, what is paradise? What is paradise? Uh, if you look in our modern day world, you see lots of depictions of paradise, heaven, eternal life. It's in the movies. I remember the movie Gladiator where he's walking through the fields, those Roman Elysian fields. Maybe it's like the old cartoon, all dogs go to heaven, where paradise is filled with dogs taking naps and it's always 73 degrees. I don't know. Maybe paradise is what other religions say. Islam has a view of paradise that some see even as this fulfillment of of lustful dreams and wishes that are fulfilled upon your life in the afterlife. Buddhism has this ever, a really never-ending cycle of reincarnation where paradise is a temporary place. But Christianity is unique. It's different than what other religions say. Christianity says that paradise is a fixed place forever with God. And Jesus himself, being God, speaks of paradise in this text. The, the thief asks a question, Jesus... Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answers by saying, today you will be with me in paradise. So Jesus is, is bridging together these concepts of kingdom and paradise. So, so what is paradise? Let me offer an answer. One answer might be this. Paradise is a place of blessing with God after death. It's a place of blessing with God after death. The criminal requests that sometime in the future, when, when the kingdom of God comes and Jesus brings in his kingdom, maybe thinking about the second coming, some, some time off in the future, then will you remember me, Jesus? But Jesus responds by saying, no, 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 today, today, you will be with me in paradise. When you study the Bible and you look from cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, The word paradise is used a couple different times. The etymology of the word actually comes from Persia. It's a a Persian word, and it often meant literally a garden with a wall. Now, you may think about an English garden or, you know, near where I grew up in South Carolina, Charleston, there are these beautiful backyard gardens down along the Battery. But that is not likely what a Middle Easterner would have thought 2,000 years ago they would have thought something like this. You can see a picture here of, I think it's called the Babor Gardens in Afghanistan, of all places. And if you can see in the picture, there's a wall that goes around this lush, verdant, green space, and around it is an arid desert with rock and, and, and uh, sand. And so there's definitely a contrast between what's happening in the wall and what's happening outside the wall. That gives us a picture of how The Bible depicts a garden and depicts paradise. In fact, Genesis 2, when it speaks of that the Lord planted a garden toward the east in Eden, the Greek New Testament translation uses the same word for paradise there, as if God planted a paradise east of Eden, where Adam and Eve were given fellowship with God to live and to dwell with God. But of course, we know that Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden because of their sin. And yet another garden is promised in Revelation 2.7. Jesus says to the one who overcomes, I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So we see the bridging in the mind of Jesus between the garden of Eden and the new heavens and the new earth, the new garden, the new paradise. And the bridge that connects those two is the cross of Christ. I, I love this picture that Michael Miyako did. Um, Michael is a former member here at Johnson Ferry, and we commissioned him to do pictures for this series. And this doesn't do it justice on the screen, but you can see here peering through a cross into a garden. In fact, sometime this week, I want to encourage all of you to go up to our third floor where we have an art gallery. Many of you don't even know that that exists, but it's a beautiful space. And go look at the works that he did as you walk down the hall, seeing the seven last words of Christ depicted in seven vivid images. And this is the one he did for today as we're looking through the cross into the garden, which is, I believe, what Jesus is doing. Because Jesus is the one who initiates and gives access into this garden with him. In John chapter 10, Jesus says this, My sheep listen to my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Isn't that a great promise? That they will not perish in eternal life and no one will snatch them out of my hand. This same Jesus who's saying, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, when we think of the cross, we don't think about paradise. We think of anything but. It's a, it's, a, it's a dark contrast to this beautiful garden that we think of. Andrew McGowan, who wrote a book on the Seven Last Words, I love how he described this scene. I love this image. He says, These are bodies hung as strange fruit on trees of death. Isn't that a vivid image? Strange fruit. On trees of death, Jesus is doing something on the cross to grant paradise. So, paradise is this place of blessing with God after death. The second question then is: Who is paradise for? Who, who gets paradise? Is that for everybody? Is that for a few people? Is that for the really religious? Who is paradise for? Well, I want to answer that, but before I do, I I want to think about these two criminals. When we think of the cross, we know that Jesus was crucified with at least two others. Perhaps there were others that the Bible doesn't record, but at least two others. And so we see scenes like this, depictions like this, where you see Jesus in the middle and two criminals on either side. And I believe in the providence of God, these two criminals are instructive for us because in their response to Jesus, I see your response to Jesus and my own response to Jesus? So let's let's dig into that a little bit. How how do we see their response to Jesus as emblematic of our response to Jesus? Well, let's look at these two criminals. Criminal number one, the one on the left, says that he spent his dying breaths mocking Jesus. Jesus. Hurling insults at Jesus. Hearing the crowd make fun of Jesus, the soldiers make fun of Jesus, the religious leaders make fun of Jesus. He jumps right on in making fun of Jesus, hurling insults at him. Save yourself and us. And he is such a depiction of so many people who in that moment can think of no other one but himself. That's his heart. Jeremiah seventeen nine says this. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart is is deceitful, desperately wicked. It's why some of the worst advice you can give to people is to follow your heart. Now, there are times where your heart can lead you to something good, of course, but most of the time, your heart can deceive you. Most of the time, your heart apart from Jesus and his work in your life, is, is deceitful and desperately wicked. And we see in this man that, that, yes, he sees Jesus, and he says, save yourself and us. He wants Jesus to be a ticket out of the pain he's experiencing on the cross. And don't people do that with Jesus now? Jesus, my marriage is a wreck. Fix it. Jesus, my career is going nowhere. Fix it. Jesus, I'm not getting along with my kids fix it. Jesus is the great fixer of all the problems in your life. And yet your motives are not to praise Jesus or to worship Jesus. Your motives are to use Jesus to get what you want. And a lot of you do that all the time. That's how we are like the first criminal. We're just using Jesus, but it's really about us. And yet we see a stark contrast between the first criminal and the second criminal. So let's talk about that second criminal, the one on his right. If you read the other Gospels, particularly in Matthew 27, it says that at least for a little bit, this criminal was insulting Jesus too. Yet, in the hours that he hung on the cross we see a change of heart. We know that Jesus was on the cross for six hours. The Bible tells us that he was hung at 9 a.m. and that he died at 3 p.m. And somewhere in those six hours, this criminal's life was changed. I believe that in the course of the hour or so, some of you are in this room this morning, your lives are going to be changed. And we see this beautiful picture of change. And to use the Bible word, we see repentance. What is repentance? It's a a change of mind. It's a change of heart. It's a change of direction. It's as if the whole criminal's life was going this way, and then he meets Christ, and his life is turned around, and now he's going to Christ. Dying to self, living to Christ. And we see in this criminal stages of repentance and faith that are instructive for us, all of us. Many of you are followers of Jesus. Some of you are not followers of Jesus. Many of you are on fire for Jesus. A lot more of you are not on fire for Jesus, having drifted from your first love. And I think we see something instructive in this criminal's response to Jesus. It's worth exploring. What do we see in him? I believe there's four stages of repentance and faith. Let's look at those together. Number one, we see that first he realizes his helplessness. He says to the other criminal, we are indeed suffering justly, receiving what we deserve. He sees his sinfulness. He sees that he is getting what he deserves. The Bible tells us in Romans 3 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us, considering the glory of God, the holiness of God, the perfection of God, all of us have sinned. Now, we, we tend not to view ourselves in relation to God. We tend to view ourselves in relation to, well, the person down the road from us. And it's like, well, God, I mean, I, I don't get it all right, but at least I'm not as bad as fill in the blank. And, and maybe it's not the person beside you, but some horrific historic figure. At least, at least I'm not Hitler. At least I'm not Stalin. At least I'm not whoever it is you find to be deplorable. But all of us compared to the perfect glory and holy of God are utterly sinful and helpless. Which gets to the second part of repentance. He realizes that he cannot fix it. It's one thing to know that you're helpless before a holy God. It's quite another to know that you, you can't fix it. And in that our tendency to fix it? Do you remember when Jesus told the story in Luke 15 of the two prodigal sons, the younger son, the older son, and the younger son that gets a lot of our attention? He takes his dad's money and he says, Dad, I'm, I'm done with this. I'm done with your rules. I'm done with your regular... I, I, I know what's best for me. He's following his own heart. And he goes and takes that money, and he spends on all kinds of wild living. He runs out of money. What was his next move? It wasn't to come back to the father. It was to get a job, to fix it himself. And where does he get a job? Feeding pigs, something no Jewish boy would ever do. But isn't that us? We get to the point where we're helpless before a Holy God, but repentance also comes with this idea that I cannot fix my greatest problem in life. Which goes to number three, he testifies that Jesus is the Christ. The sign above Jesus' head read, this is the king of the Jews. Now, the different gospels give slight variations on that, but that is the essence. This is the king of the Jews. And we don't know much about this criminal, what he learned of Jesus. I'm sure he knew something of Jesus. Jesus had called us quite astir for years. I'm sure that he had heard the stories and heard the miracles and maybe even caught wind of some of the teaching and, and saw the sign that was above his head, this is the king of the Jews. And he recognizes that this is the king of the Jews, intellectually. This man has done nothing wrong. Isn't that one of the themes of Jesus' crucifixion? Pilate knows that Jesus has nothing wrong. Pilate's wife knows that Jesus has done nothing wrong. Herod knows that Jesus has done nothing wrong. The religious leaders know Jesus has done nothing wrong. That's why they had to get fake witnesses to, to, to be in the trial. Judas knows that Jesus has done nothing wrong. That's why he kills himself later out of guilt. Even this criminal on the cross knows that Jesus has done nothing wrong. He is the king of the Jews. He is the Christ. He has a head faith of who Christ is. And salvation begins when we realize that Jesus is the king. John 1.14 says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. But I can't, can I tell you that recognizing that Jesus is the Christ is not enough? Did you know that? Simply knowing that Jesus is the Christ is not enough. In fact, if you only know that Christ is the Messiah, then that puts you right on par with with the devil and his demons. Congratulations. Way to go. You're up there with the demons. Awesome. You say, what are you talking about? Well, James 2 says this. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Repentance does not happen when we simply acknowledge that Jesus is the King. Repentance happens when I acknowledge that Jesus is my King. Not just that Jesus is the Lord, but Jesus is my Lord. And true repentance means that I recognize that Jesus is the Lord of my life and my wallet and my free time and my family and my mind and my heart and my hands and my feet. That's what it means to repent, to acknowledge this man says, Jesus, remember me. Which brings us to this last stage that we see in his repentance, that number four, he, he pleads with Jesus for salvation. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what does Jesus say to him? Truly, I say to you that today you'll be with me in paradise. Which gets back to the second question. Who is paradise for? According to this text, according to the whole Bible, it is a place reserved after death, For the saved. Notice there are two criminals. One was promised paradise, the other was not. And this gets at the heart of the gospel of Jesus that he is our substitute on the cross, bearing the sins that we should be bearing, but instead he bore them on his back that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's the gospel. And the gospel, when we when we know it, and when we take hold of it, and when we depend on it, it it, it tells us that it's not about us; it's about Jesus. I know in this room, what are we sing, Yet not I, but Christ. It's not about me. There's this there's this uh, video that I've watched a hundred times on YouTube. It's so great. Uh, I want you to find it sometime today. Uh, Alistair Begg is a is a pastor up in Cleveland, Ohio, and he's got this video. It's so great, and and he's given this illustration, and he's talking about Jesus on the cross, and he almost like a throwaway illustration, he talks about the thief on the cross. And he says, just imagine what it was like to be that thief on the cross. And and Beg is doing this in context of this question that sometimes people would ask in evangelism: if you were to die tonight and stand before a holy God and he said, Why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? I wonder what this thief on the cross would say. Just imagine the moment that he died. We don't know when he died, but sometime that day he must have died. And just imagine him coming up into heaven, and an angel appears, and the angel says to the criminal, "What are you doing here?" The criminal says, "I don't know." <laughs> we, you don't know. So the angel goes back, begs, kind of building up the scene, right? He goes back. He gets his uh, supervisor angel, right? The supervisor angel comes. We got a problem here. All right, what are, you, what are you doing here? I don't know. Well, let me ask you a few questions. What do you think about the doctrine of justification by faith in Jesus Christ? Never heard of it. Hmm. What about baptism? Tell, tell me when you got baptized. What's baptism? Never been baptized. What about scripture? What about the Holy Spirit? What about, I, I don't know, I know anything. And then the angel asked him, then on what basis are you here in heaven today? And he says one thing, the man on the middle cross said I could come. The man on the middle cross said, said I could come. And that, folks, is the response to the gospel. It's not about you and how good you are and your church attendance and that you do all these wonderful things. No, it is not about you. It starts with what Christ has done for you. Jesus said to that man, not based on that man's merit, but based on his faith, today you will be with me in paradise. And paradise is reserved not for good people, but for saved people, forgiven people, who are there because the man in the middle cross said I could come. And this is such a unique situation. It's the kind of deathbed conversion. And there's not another one of these in Scripture. In fact, J.C. Ryle, an Anglican, wrote this about this scene. He says, There is one such case recorded. Why? Why? So that none need despair, but only one in Scripture that none might presume. What he's saying is this. The promise of this text is that even in your dying breath, you can be saved if you turn to Jesus. So no one needs to despair, even on your deathbed. But don't presume, because can I tell you, you don't know if you're going to have a deathbed. You don't know if you're going to have dying breaths. You don't know how long your life's going to live. Your life could end this afternoon. You have no idea. But whenever your life ends, will you be in paradise with God? I guess the last question, what difference does it make? That's a question we need to wrestle with all throughout this series. Not to see these as simply wonderful things that Jesus said 2,000 years ago. But what do they mean for my life right now in 2024? They mean a lot. But one of the things I can think of, and I would encourage all of you today, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, is don't, don't lose sight of his mercy. Don't let it drift from your mind and your heart. Etch that onto your heart. I don't know if you've been to Washington, D.C., and you've seen the Vietnam Memorial. Many of you have been there. And at this memorial and others, you'll see this scene a lot someone who is etching a name from that memorial. Many people do this every single year on their birthday, or maybe the birthday of the person who gave their life fighting for our country. And, and, And why do they do this? Why do they trace that name again and again and again? It's to remember, it's to not forget. And we are to never forget the price that Christ paid so that we might be made right with him. I love Romans 12:1 says this. I think I quote this verse a lot, but it's so good. It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, look at that, in view of God's mercy. There it is. Don't forget his mercy. In view of God's mercy to do what? To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true improper worship. People think worship's all about music. No, no, no. Worship is about offering your heart to God as a holy and living sacrifice. Now, do you hear, hear the oxymoron in that? Let me ask you, are sacrifices usually living or dead? Which one? The Dead. But we are to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. Sacrifice in view of God's mercy, which means that day after day, we are not to forget the grace and the mercy of Jesus. And can I just say, how many of us do that all the time? Drifting away from Jesus, forgetting what he's done, acting as if my eternal life is based on the things I do, when it's about the man on the middle cross who said I could come. I love this hymn Before the Throne of God Above and one of the lyrics I wrote them down it it says this it says when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within upward I look and see him there who made it in to all my sin because the sinless Savior died my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on Him. Who's the Him? Jesus. And pardon me. Isn't that the gospel? So, my question for you today is pretty simple. Will you be in paradise with God? Will you? Are you living in light? The mercy of God and what He's done for you. You know, I'm just looking out of this room here in the AC, looking through that camera to the people in the sanctuary. It's uh it's not really our custom to do altar calls. We we do that sometimes, but but not often. But as I read this text today and just prayed through this Sunday, I I felt led to do that today. Now, God is not more present at the front of the room than he is back on the bleachers or back in the, in the balcony of the sanctuary. God is just as present there as he is here. But I know in my life, there have been times when I needed to do some visible, tangible thing as an act of commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've been praying all week that There are people that come here every single Sunday who think they're saved, but you're not. You say, how do you know that? Well, I'm not God, I guess I don't know that. But it seems like every time we talk about spiritual things, you talk about you instead of Jesus. And that's not the language of someone who's been set free by Jesus. And I think there are people that just like that thief on the cross need to have the assurance that today, if you died, you'd be in paradise because you've given your life to Jesus. But I'm not just talking to people who are unbelievers who we pray that will come believe. I'm talking to a lot of you who are Christians. Yes, you're saved. That's glorious. But a lot of you have drifted away from your first love. A lot of you have gotten distracted in the things that that aren't the most important things. You've got so fixated on things that aren't the ultimate things. And I just wonder if today's not a day that you need to maybe to come and pray at at the front of the stage, in the sanctuary, the front of that stage, just as a visible way of saying, God, I need need to come back to you. Christianity is evaporating in this country, but there's still enough of kind of Southern church culture where people think, as long as I go to church, I'm good with God. Can I tell you that church people don't go to heaven, forgiven people go to heaven. If you die without Christ, you will spend eternity in hell, separated from him, but you don't have to. Is Jesus is also saying to you that if you were to die today, if you respond in repentance and faith, today you'll be with me in paradise. So here's what we're gonna do. Again, we don't do this every week. The last service, we had several people that came. We may have some, a lot, I don't know. We got plenty of time. But I'm gonna ask uh, our pastors and some ministers to, to be in the front of both of our rooms today. And I'm going to pray for you. And when I say amen, uh, I want to encourage many of you to get up out of your seat and to come. And you come to this place and pray. Maybe if you're with your spouse, you want to do that together. Maybe you just want to come individually. Tell them briefly what it is that you're coming to, to be prayed for, a decision you're making. And we'd love to hold your hand and encourage you and walk you through whatever it is that God's doing in your life let's just give this moment to God. Uh, I would ask that no one's leaving. I I can't think of anywhere that you need to be that's more important than this moment right here. So let's just ask God to move. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes and let's pray together. Dear God, I I thank you for the promise of this text. Lord, That salvation is granted through Christ because of his finished work and his direct declaration that we are, that we are his. And Lord, in both rooms today, I, I think there are people that need to make either first-time commitments or, or maybe one millionth commitments of recommitment to you today because they've drifted from you. And Lord, I pray in this moment that you respond to people, that they would respond to whatever it is you're telling them to do. I think there's people right now that feel like, I need to go up there. I need to. I need to be prayed for. I need to come and pray. I'm scared what people think of me. God, would you just abolish all that Chunk that Satan loves doing our life and make our responding to you the most important thing. So, God, we give you this moment. I know in my life you have often used moments like this. It's just a clarifying way to remind me of my commitment to you and your commitment to me. And I pray that's true for others today. So, Lord, we give you this moment. It's in Jesus' name we pray.